0: I get the privilege of sharing with you in my second sermon, The Covenant of Circumcision. So I want to uh, say you're welcome to all the parents of young children for talking about circumcision for a while and saying it as many times as we can in one service. We are now five chapters in to the life of Abraham. When we began, he was 75 years old. And by the end of chapter 16, he's 86. As you heard in the reading today, now he's 99. Through the first 11 years, we've seen Abraham grow through some high points and low points. Like us, sometimes he shines brightly as an exemplary character. And then other times he serves as an example of what not to do, particularly in marriage. In chapter 12, for instance, he he was unquestionably courageous. When God commanded him, go to a land that I will show you, he trusted God. He left what he knew and went to what he did not know. But soon after that act of faith, he gave over his wife to a pagan king. To save his own neck. And God, he rescued Abraham and Sarah from that situation. And Abraham seems to have learned from that experience. Because right after that, in chapters 13 through 14, he exercised selflessness instead of selfishness. He exercised courage instead of fear. He even risked his own life when he rescues his selfish nephew, Lot, from a band of fierce major armies and in chapter 15 he shines the brightest it's despite these horrible odds that he trusts in god's promises to him that he will receive many descendants and a large bit of land a large piece of land and in the midst of this remarkable growth i mean right after this remarkable picture of growth After God has confirmed his covenant with him by this very uh, graphic scene of walking between these carcasses of animals, God committing himself to Abraham to fulfill his promises to him, right after that, Abraham falters in his faith. And it results in very painful consequences for his family. He he accepts Sarah's offer to have a child by her handmaid. And it creates this massive rupture in their relationship. A first-time reader of the story can't help but ask, What's going to happen next? What will God do with Abraham and his family? The child Abraham longed for, instead of bringing joy to his family, has multiplied the misery The problem of Sarah's barrenness isn't solved. Instead, her own dark cloud of bitterness and envy, it encompasses the entire family. God has promised that he will make Abraham into a man of greatness. But it sure doesn't look like he is one yet. And so when we come to chapter 17, we ask, what will God do next? How will he continue Abraham's formation into a great man? There are a couple ways in chapter 17 that it seems this is exactly what God is doing. He is forming Abraham. He's continuing his formation. He hasn't forsaken him, but he's continuing to form him. Now, these occur kind of throughout the chapter, But the first one we'll look at, the first way that God is forming Abraham is through the promise of extravagant gifts. It's really been happening since chapter 12. God promised to Abraham that he would give him land, that he would give him descendants, that he would make him into this great man. But it's continuing here. God reaffirms these promises and not only reaffirms them, but expands on them. In chapter 17, we should know that the word covenant is used 13 times in 27 verses. Clearly, it's an important theme. But it could be confusing because we saw covenant in chapter 15. And in that chapter, God walked between the carcasses of animals as a way of him saying, saying that he would fulfill his covenant to Abraham. So, when we come to chapter 17, and God, He does give these promises of His covenant, but then He also lays on Abraham some obligations and says, This is the covenant you will keep. You know, it could force us to ask Is this an exchange or is this a gift? In other words, is God giving things to Abraham or is he requiring things from from Abraham and then giving things in exchange? The author wants us to be very clear that everything that God is doing for Abraham is a gift. The obligations don't change the nature of God's agreement. You see, God, everything that he gives, is a gift. We'll expand on those obligations in in just a bit. The only difference between chapter 15 and the covenant God made there and what happens in chapter 17 in terms of the promises is that the promises are clearer and they're greater than anything we've seen so far. So for instance, God will make Abraham not only into a nation, but as you see in the first part of chapter 17, into a multitude of nations. He says this in verse 5. No longer, verse 5, No longer shall your name be Abram, but your name shall be Abraham, for I have made you the father of a multitude of nations. Can you imagine the humbling weight of this promise for a guy like Abraham? This is a man who just had his first child at 86. He's now 99 and has promised that he will be the one to whom generations of people will trace back their lineage. If a couple hundred years later, people went to Ancestor.com and looked up their ancestry from multitudes of nations, they would go back and they would find Father Abraham. You know, we we all like to kind of play one-upmanship on who has the greatest person in their ancestry. I would probably win here because I have Mark Twain in mine. But (laughs) Abraham, God is saying to Abraham, you will be the father of many nations. People will reach back to you. It's an incredible gift. But not only that, they keep getting bigger. Within these nations, kings will arise from Abraham's line. So Abraham's descendants, they won't be simply peasants, peasants or slaves in many nations. They'll be wealthy, powerful rulers. And then also God will continue this covenant with Abraham's descendants. This is the first time we realize this covenant, this agreement that God is making with Abraham, it's not just for him. It's for all his children and the children of their children. It it goes on for, for generation to generation. You know, whether you knew it or know it or not, ancient Canaan was not a Mayberry. You wouldn't have carried your bullets around in your pocket. It was a dangerous place. It wouldn't be a surprise to discover that a man's entire family was wiped out along with any hope of his name continuing on. And so within these promises to Abraham, there is this bit of kind of nervousness that at any point, this band of armies could come along and destroy all of Abraham's family. But God promises To be there for all of Abraham's descendants. This is a promise of protection. That he'll care for them. That he will preserve all of Abraham's family. I mean, if you think about it closely, he's got one son right now. Everything is dependent on this one son. And his wife hates that one son. And yet, God promises, I will be God to all your descendants. And you will be the father of a multitude of nations. These are Remarkable promises. But then the greatest one yet. It's the first time we learn this. This is in verses 15 through 21. God will not provide this promise through Hagar. It's not Ishmael. God will provide a child through Sarah. For the first time, Abraham learns that the son of promise, the son through whom God will pass on his covenant, it's Sarah. Abraham is 99 years old. It's mentioned twice in the chapter. Age is huge here. When Hagar bore uh, Ishmael, though, Abraham was 86. Do you know that for 13 years, Abraham has been thinking that Ishmael is the son whom God had promised him? That's all Abraham has to lean on. He's 99, his wife is 90, has been barren all these years. Is she to have another child? No. It's Ishmael. For 13 years, Abraham has leaned on this thought that Ishmael is the son to whom God has promised him. But then God shatters his world and says, your 90-year-old wife will bear you, you old man, a child. You know, maybe in this moment he thinks, wow, maybe that's why God was so hard on Pharaoh. Regardless, it, it, it shatters him. After first laughing in disbelief, Abraham asked the same questions we would. How? Why? Why not Ishmael? That question, why not Ishmael? It's a question worth considering. You know, all these gifts... To be a father of nations, a father of kings, to be guaranteed divine protection, they add up to this magnificent greatness for Abraham. But, you know, we can all, all of us here from experience can think of people of greatness in terms of power, wealth, and fame who are far from great people. We can look at the news every day and we can see people who are great In terms of the amount of power that they have The amount of influence Their fame But few of us would call them great people In fact few people in the world Would call them great people So the question with regard to Abraham is How is God forming Abraham Into a man who can Receive greatness Greatness can destroy people Just as much as it can bless them Maybe even more so how he, will he form Abraham into a man who can handle greatness and it not destroy him? And from the entire story of Abraham, since chapter 12, the way God is forming Abraham is by promising ever-increasing greatness, even assuring him of it, but making him wait for it. It's so key. He promises him greatness, but then he makes him wait. He promises him more greatness, and then he makes him wait. And then more greatness, and then he makes him wait. So why does God choose Isaac over Ishmael? There may be multiple reasons. I think there's one that's the clearest. It's a way of saying that God's promises, God's covenant, can only be carried out through his own power. Through a work of miraculous proportions. This is a gift greater than Abraham knows how to ask for. He and Sarah are both too old. It is, beyond all reasonable doubt, impossible. It's only here, in the midst of that impossibility though, that Abraham can recognize who God is and recognize how to trust God. You see, this is what makes a person great and able to handle greatness. When they trust God with their greatness. You see, waiting is the school where formation occurs. Waiting for God's promises is where we learn how to handle God's promises, how to receive them and then steward them the way that God wants us to. Yeah, you know, there are so many gifts God has promised to, pe- promise to people who believe in His Son, Jesus. We, like Abraham, those who believe in Jesus are promised a land where we'll be kings. We will have family from all over the world, every nation. And God will be there. He will be there near to us, protecting us. We long for a day when the world is made right. When God judges evil and the world will be full of righteousness and justice. But this time, while we wait... Like Abraham's time of waiting is a school of formation. It's formation in patience, endurance, and hope. But there are other promises God has given to you. There are promises God has given to every believer here who walks with God. Promises that only you know about. Maybe it's a calling to some specific job. A calling to some specific role in the world and in God's purposes, but something you're not able to do yet. Instead, you're serving in something that you feel overqualified to do. And you just feel like you're waiting. Maybe it's just a job that God has promised you, provision that God has promised you, and you're just waiting. Maybe it's the hope of a spouse, maybe it's the hope for friendship and loneliness. There's so many things as we walk with God, we we feel God promise us. We feel God extend to us this assurance that he will be there for us, that he will care for us, and that he'll provide these wonderful things that we need, and that we not only we need, that we desire. But yet, then we're called to just wait. (laughs) How is God forming you as you wait? What promises are there that God has given to you that He's just you, you just feel like you're waiting. It's it's dangling out there before you, but you just can't reach it yet. It, you're just waiting. And the waiting can feel like misery. But how is God forming you in that? Have you run out of patience and are no longer letting God form you in that? The waiting is part of the formation. God teaches us to trust Him and how to steward the promises that He will one day give us. This is what God shows us from the life of Abraham. This is what God is doing in the life of Abraham. I would, if there are any, is anyone here who is just searching, you haven't necessarily decided that Christianity is for you. I would encourage you to think about this, because the world does teach us that there are, times of formation. There are seasons of formation where we need to learn, where we need to mature as people. But the thing that the world doesn't teach us is that we need God's help to do that. And that's what Christianity teaches us. We can't be formed on our own. We can't even be formed just by people out in the world. But God teaches us and brings us into a school of formation, teaches us who we are and who he is and how to live in relationship to him and to his world. And we need that help. While Abraham waits for these gifts of God, these extravagant gifts, God also forms him in another way. And the other way he forms him is through obligation. Through obligation. God gives three commands to Abraham in this chapter. Walk before me, be blameless, and circumcise yourself and everyone in your house. This is the part everyone's been waiting for. Walk before me, be blameless. These are the first moral commands God has given to him at all. The first ones. You know, he told him in chapter 12, go, go to a place that I will show you. But God has given him no clear moral commands. He's not taught Abraham necessarily explicitly what it means to walk before him and to be his servant. But when he gives him the first moral commands, he holds nothing back. These are massive in their implication. God calls for Abraham to reorient his entire life around him. God was to become this determining factor in every decision that he made. And as we're about to see, the command of circumcision is not unrelated. Some might see it as a bit strange. Or maybe just in the interest of hygiene in an ancient society. Culturally speaking, circumcision was not at all strange. It was common in Egypt and other ancient cultures. Probably more common than not. Clearly, the fact that Abraham has not been circumcised at 99 indicates that some Mesopotamian groups where Abraham is from didn't practice circumcision. But otherwise, it was extremely common. The evidence we have tells us that it it rarely happened before the age of puberty. It was probably served as a rite of passage, a preparatory act for marriage. So we can thank God that we didn't live back then. <laughs> Culturally speaking, it wasn't all at, odd, all at all odd for God to choose circumcision. The thing that's unique, the thing that's unique that God imposes here is that it happened from birth. It happened from the day a child was eight days old. You know, one of the things this tells us is that it was permanent. And it was indicative of God's covenant, that God's covenant was permanent. But also that from a very young age, from the time a child was born, they were expected to know of God and to obey Him. That a child was capable of being raised up in a way that they knew who God was and that they could walk with God. But there's a more potent meaning than even that. And that is that this wasn't just a physical sign. We often think of circumcision as just this physical cut. But the sign, even from our, our passage, is equated with a person's relationship to God. Verse 11, if you read it closely, It shall be a sign of the covenant between me and you. This act was the way of recognizing whether a person was in relationship with God. Verse 14. Anyone not circumcised will be cut off from his people. He has broken my, that's God, covenant. Covenant is the way that a person enters into relationship with God. An agreement to relationship. You see, this physical thing was not just physical. It was Indicative of a person's relationship with God. Now, it might help us to know that covenant signs in the ancient ancient world always have two meanings. In this case, well, you could say they cut both ways. The circumcision of the skin, the cutting of it, indicated that the heart was also circumcised. That a person became oriented to God in all he did. Deuteronomy 10.16 Circumcise then the foreskin of your heart. Don't be stubborn any longer. You see, circumcision brought people into the covenant with God. Every child that was circumcised was in a new relationship to God. But they were to walk in that circumcision. This is why Moses later tells the people, circumcise your heart. You need to continue into the circumcision that's already occurred in your life. But there's a, so that, that's a, to, to walk in that is to walk in the blessings of a relationship with God. But the negative side of the covenant are the curses. You often see this in the Old Testament, the blessings of the covenant, the curses of the covenant. You see, the bad side of that was if you were not cut, literally the the sign of the covenant, you were cut off from God's people. There are blessings, but then there are curses. To not circumcise the flesh was to not circumcise the heart. And that means to be cut off from God's people. So if you bring together the whole picture, Abraham learns to walk before God in blamelessness through the act of circumcision, of the covenant sign. It was a constant reminder of who he was before God and his responsibility to walk before him. I hope you've already been able to build some connecting points in your mind. You know, through Jesus, the son of Abraham, the true Israelite, God has given all the gifts he promised to Abraham. Our presence here, our presence here is proof that Abraham is the father of many nations. God has also given us the obligation of a new covenant sign, that sign being baptism. Baptism by the power of the Spirit brings us into a new covenant relationship with God. But there are two signs to to baptism, two sides to it. You see, when the water is poured over you, or if you were immersed in water, that water that initially goes over you is the sign of death, the sign of you being drowned, the old you being drowned in the water, washed away. But when the water's gone, when you come up from it, or the water has passed over you, that means you're washed, and it brings on new life. But here's the challenging part of that. That if you don't walk, so you're in covenant with God, but if you don't walk in your baptism, the new life that God has given you, it's as if you've remained under the water in death. And you remain under God's judgment. So, For everyone here who's been baptized, children especially, baptism doesn't give you a free pass to God. But you can experience the blessings of relationship with God through baptism, through walking with God in the new life that He's given to you. So Abraham was formed through the obligation to circumcision. We are formed through the obligation to baptism. Be baptized and receive new life. This is what the New Testament tells us. So as you experience baptism and continue to live into your baptism, you are formed through the obligations that God has given to us as his people. In this chapter, God is forming Abraham through the promise of these great gifts and through obligation. It's not just gifts. It's not just obligations. It's both. You know, in America, though, we sometimes talk about gifts with strings attached. And when we say that, we don't mean anything positive. Sometimes rightly so. Sometimes when there's a gift that someone's giving us, but there are strings attached, like we said earlier, it might be more of an exchange than an actual gift. I give you this, you do services for me. But that's not always the case. You know, the best gifts come with obligation. I can think of a a child wanting a, a puppy so desperately, begging for days, weeks, months, years, that their parents would give them a puppy. And they promise with all their heart, they'll take care of that puppy. And regardless of whether the child really does or not, that's not what this illustration is about. Eventually, the parent will... Give the child that puppy because they love that child. And that puppy is a gift. But with that gift, there are obligations. The child is to take care of that puppy. In a perfect world, the child does. The best gifts come with obligation. You know, I I gave Katie a wedding ring. She knew there were obligations to receiving that ring. But for some reason, she still saw it as a gift. You know, one of the biggest tragedies in a marriage or any close relationship is when one person expects nothing of the other. They, they free the other person from any strings, any ties, any claims or expectations. But no true lover... No true lover can be indifferent to the response of their beloved. No person who truly loves another can be indifferent to the way that the person responds to them. Love always makes claims. It always does. So God, in relationship to us, He makes claims upon us. We're his and his only. We're to walk before him and be blameless, orienting our our entire lives around him and him only. At the same time, obligations without gifts, that's a perversion of Christianity. It's moralism. This isn't a sermon about earning your way. God promised the gifts. This is why this is so important and we started out with this. God gave gifts. The obligations did not change the nature of the relationship. God committed himself to giving the gifts and then obligated Abraham to walk with him. You know, this is the same with us. With anybody who will respond to God. God loves us, saves us as broken people. And then day by day leads us to walk with him. The chapter closes with this double emphasis on Abraham's obedience. It's verses 23 and 26. That very day Abraham did as God said to him. That very day. So while Abraham waits for the gifts that God has promised, he's formed through obedience. He waits for the gifts and God forms him as he waits. But then Abraham is formed through obedience. I want to make an, an, another point, quick point here. If you're coming and visiting, you're not a Christian. I think Christianity, this is one of the beautiful ways that it teaches us how to view the world. It, it creates this amazing balancing act between indulgence and between moralism. You see, God graciously gives to His people kindness and forgiveness. But then He teaches them to walk with Him. It's a balancing act in Christianity. He doesn't indulge us, but then He also doesn't give us moralism to where we have to earn what He gives us. It's almost a mystery that we we have difficulty explaining. All theologians have difficulty explaining it. And it's because it's God. The way God does things. He gives us gifts and then he teaches us to walk with him. Friends, how are you this morning being formed? Or in your life, how are you being formed? Through waiting and formed through obedience. As you wait on God's sure promises, are you walking with him? Or are you, have you rejected God's means of forming you through impatience? Disregard for God's commands. It's a perfect time to repent, to turn to God and to receive his mercies. We'll share the table and it's a place that you can run to and that God's mercies are always there. Let's pray together.